Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Let's stick with this image, this almost completely, this idea that something is always lacking in the so-called field of enjoyment, in the Lacanian field. There's a certain type of enjoyment that is always subtracted within the field of surplus enjoyment. Surplus enjoyment as that plucked flower gives us a sense of how this shit unfolds. The gain of surplus enjoyment is also what denotes the loss of access to sexual enjoyment. The same way that if you pull a plant out of a field, the divot is left behind. That's part of what Lacan's fucking with here. He's not just thinking about lilies in the field. He wants to think more about the stem that is uprooted from the field of jouissance and the hole that's left behind. Now, this, if you're a gardener, sounds awful, but for Lacan, it's crucial. The ultimate testament, he says, again on page 67, continuing from this very same passage, to the consistency of a radical, logical system or structure for Lacan is its ability to mark these limits, to designate these effects of incompleteness that come whenever a flower or plant is plucked from a field. The test of the system is whether and to what extent you're able to mark or designate this resulting loss, this emergence of loss within that field. Check it out. 67 is pretty good on this stuff. You heard the bit about the stem that is uprooted from jouissance. And then Lacan says an inverse question arises of what corresponds to the enjoying of these conquests in logic that in our day are being made. So he's asking again about what it is to enjoy the conquest that is the flower that has been plucked from the field and is now sitting on your dining room table, but also with the field itself as the site of loss now, the site in which a divot or a hole can now be seen. And he wants to somehow link this up with logical conquests, logic. There is this. For example, that a logical system is consistent, however, quote, weak it is, as they say, only by designating its force of effect, of incompleteness, where its limit is marked. To what jouissance does this way in which the logical foundation proves to be opening up correspond? In other words, what is truth here? Now, holding off for a minute, in the sense of truth, and just thinking about the system that he's talking about here. What he's saying is that the logical foundation of any truly radical system is going to be an opening up, where the limit of that system, 
the dead zone in that system, its constitutive void or blind spot, is clearly marked, designated. This limit must be marked. And then he wants to ask the other question. How are these marked limits, these designated incompletions, these foundational opening ups enjoyed? How do you enjoy these things? So he's not just content to say that there's a constitutive void in every structure and a truly radical logical system is one that can name that void. He then wants to add this other element and get off on it. What does it mean to enjoy the designation of the void that is constitutive for your, I don't know, discipline, your family, your life? What does it mean not just to name the dead zone, but to enjoy that process of naming? And notice, he's not exactly talking about us as subjects in that system. He's even more radical than that when he's asking about enjoyment. He wants to know, at the level of the systems themselves, how is enjoyment experienced? Enjoyment at the level of a structure, not so much at the level of a subject. That's a really interesting additional radicalization of his question. How do structures enjoy marking their own limits? Notice, he is beyond talking about whether the other exists anymore. He is beyond debating whether or not the vessel of the Danaides is leaky. He wants to know what they talk about on their lunch break when they refer to the fact that the vessel they're commanded to fill for eternity has a leak in it. What kind of enjoyment occurs when you name that crack? And again, think about this at the level of the myth, at the level of the structure of the narrative. That's where he wants to add this third radical element. It's less about the subjects and their enjoyment than it is about how the structure itself, as it unfolds, as a discourse, gets off on marking its own limits. In order to make sense of this, I invite you to take a closer look at the previous page. Once again, you see us making that move. We come up with something wild on page 67, and then I say, now turn back to page 66 and take a look at this. First point. Page 66. We are beings born of surplus jouissance as a result of the use of language. You see it right there about in the middle of the page. A use of language whose first and foremost instantiation, regardless of whether this language was your first, your second, now what we're talking about here, we're talking about the first and foremost function of language regardless of which language was the one that you began with. It's always a no. No matter what the signifier was, it functioned as prohibition, requiring a renunciation of any further pursuit of sexual jouissance. That's what we're adding to this very worn point that we've been making for a while now. This is why Lacan goes on to specify what he means by the use of language. We are beings born of surplus jouissance as a result of the use of language. 
And you've heard us talk about the use of language at its origin, but notice how Lacan develops this on page 66 in the following paragraph. When I say the use of language, I do not mean that we use it. It is language that uses us. Language employs us. And that is how it enjoys. This is why the only chance for the existence of God is that he, with a capital H, enjoys, that he is jouissance. The question here is not how subjects in a language enjoy, but instead how language gets off by employing subjects. Language, he says, enjoys by repeatedly, endlessly, perennially applying itself to us, ever redisfiguring us as living individuals that we are, as split subjects, barred subjects, personal identities that we now get to have, to possess. So you can hear the split in Lacan between being and having again. There's the living individual, and then there's the mark, marks, that language introduces into, as a mark, into that living individual, giving us something we can have, something we can possess, namely an identity, a subjectivity. Language, let's be precise here, enjoys at the level of the mark of the subject. A subject that is one part subjugated and one part subjectivized by this mark. Language gets off on leaving this mark in a living individual. It enjoys applying itself to us. And not just once, but repetitively. Because the living individual always exceeds any given mark, this gives language yet another and another and another occasion to issue an additional mark ad infinitum. So the dilemma of having a living individual body that exceeds any given mark that the big barred other through various S2s can assign to us as S1s, notice how we're threading all the themes together here, is dangerous, is dilemmatic, is precisely what conditions the enjoyment of the big barred other. Because when we exceed any given mark, that leaves just a little bit not yet represented that the big barred other through S2 by way of an S1 can give us another mark, a new mark. That's what Lacan is getting at here when he talks about how language enjoys. And that's what he's queuing up on 67. How would a system enjoy, and now he's telling us, it enjoys language by employing us. It's not that we use language, it's that language uses us, and it gets off on that very fact. So let's see if we can reconcile these two pages. On 67, you've got the image of the cut stem uprooted from the field of jouissance, and then you've got this image of a system, a structure, that enjoys at the level of marking its limits, not just finding them, but also designating them. And then on 66, we've got this image of language. And the indication here is that language as a system that enjoys marking its own limits is going to find those limits 
in us, in the living individuals where it applies the mark of subjectivity again and again and again. So what you get is enjoyment at the level of a structure. When that structure is applied to the living embodied experience of those it subjugates and subjectifies. Isn't that precisely what we have been working on with this diagram that specifies how these structures work? Call it the symbolic, call it the big barred other. Here Lacan is calling it language, but the same application occurs. With each representation of the subject, something slips out. Some part of the subject's living embodied existence slips out and exceeds any given mark assigned to it by the big barred other. Language, the symbolic. You can pick a structure as applied to the subject, to the living individual, and you'll see the same logic applying. And then it has to go again. It revs back up, comes up with new signifiers, and encompasses that part that kept slipping out. Think back to our series on 16 and my discussion of my cat, Lucifer. You see this subject continually being ejected from the process as part of the living individual that is not yet covered by any given mark. Language gets off on continually finding new places in the living individual to install another mark of subjectivity. That's what this indicates. Now you can take objet a and you can stretch it through and say objet a is the measure of the distance or the gap between any given iteration of the barred subject. Okay? You could also say objet a measures the iterative distance between every S2 as it expands out to encompass a new part, to cover a new part of the living individual, to subjectify a new part of that lived experience. In each case, though, what we're marking is a certain type of enjoyment. And here, Lacan is most keen on the enjoyment at the level of the system. The system enjoys repetitively expanding itself to include new designations, new utilizations, new employments of us. That's what we're seeing when we connect the dots between 67 and 66 here in Seminar 17. Language employs us, and that is how it enjoys. What he means, more precisely, is that it enjoys by repeatedly employing us, repeatedly putting us to use, repeatedly intruding on our lived experience. Let's be clear. Language enjoys repeatedly marking the living individual whose material embodied lived experience always exceeds the latest mark in any given sequence of marks administered by language. That's the danger, and as you heard me put it, the dilemma of having a living individual body that always exceeds the latest sequence of designations or marks of subjectivity that we receive from the social, from the symbolic, from language here. So, this is a precarious place to be. The other part that you want to integrate into this is this image of a field of jouissance that is incomplete. 
like language that is always limited, that has a constitutive void you often heard me describe in it. And it gets off on finding that limit and marking it. And that's precisely what we're talking about here. Language repeatedly finds the outer limit of its subjectivizing process in living individuals and then installs a new mark there, ever expanding out. Now, we as living individuals always will exceed that system, like all systems. That's an important part of what Lacan is doing in the relationship between the subject and the other, the barred subject and the big barred other. There's a part of the barred subject that always exceeds what the big barred other, what the social, is able to represent, is able to inscribe and the like. And that's what we're working with here. This marks an extreme excess within and sometimes at the very outer reaches of language, well represented by the fact that instead of encompassing the final round here of S1 and Bard subject, it is in excess of the latest encompassment. That's important here, especially when we're trying to understand this field of enjoyment that is surplus enjoyment. Now, what you've heard me talking about here is that surplus enjoyment in its repetition, its fallen reductive recursive return and indexical relation to loss of access to sexual enjoyment, this field of surplus enjoyment, it marks its origin there at the loss of sexual enjoyment. And that's what's happening here. You have a reciprocal constitution where the loss of sexual enjoyment is the same as the gain of surplus enjoyment. That's a really important part, and it's baked right in to Lacan's French when it comes to surplus enjoyment. Plus de jouis, plus de jouis is surplus enjoyment. But if you read it literally, if you really dig in there, and I'm not the first person to notice this, I just think it's a really nice point to make. It means there's more to enjoy in the field of surplus enjoyment, but it also means you're no longer enjoying. There is the loss that corresponds to that gain. In the field of language, in the field of surplus enjoyment, there's always something more to enjoy, plus de jouis. But at the same time, the more and the surplus and the enjoyment that continues, it can also suggest a kind of tinge of beyond enjoyment. All of this, though, is conditioned on a no longer, a field of enjoyment that is no longer accessible, a plus de jouis as no longer enjoying. That's what's up. In the very same word, surplus enjoyment, you see the gain and this loss being reciprocally constitutive. They go together. You can't have more to enjoy unless there is a part in the field of enjoyment where you can no longer enjoy, where you can no longer, more precisely, pursue enjoyment. The pathway is blocked to sexual enjoyment, and that's precisely what conditions our existence in surplus enjoyment. And isn't that precisely what Lacan's getting at here on page 66, when he says, we are beings born of surplus jouissance as a result of the use of language. So everything you know about Lacan 
castration, symbolic alienation, integration into the symbolic, all the stuff we've been discussing for a while in this series, comes to a head in Seminar 17 around this notion of surplus enjoyment. We are beings born of surplus enjoyment, not just thrown into it, but born of it as a process. And what we're trying to specify here now is that this is a process where in order to have more to enjoy, there always has to be a field or realm in which enjoyment can no longer occur, can no longer proceed towards a certain type of enjoyment. That's what I'm getting at here when on 67, I read this stem that is uprooted from jouissance as a plucked flower put in a vase on the dining room table. The plucked flower is an object for surplus enjoyment, but the removal of it from the field of jouissance, the broader field of jouissance, leaves a divot, leaves a hole, a place where you can no longer proceed towards another type of enjoyment, that is, sexual enjoyment. That's what we're getting at here. That's how these two pages stitch together. The point that we have arrived at, though, is this interesting statement that we don't use language, but language uses us. Now, if you go back and you look at some of Lacan's mid-50s stuff, especially around psychosis, this is one of the ways that he diagnoses the psychotic. The psychotic is somebody who is used by language versus the neurotic, which is somebody who uses language. So this is a very odd characterization. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with this. I get the point that he's trying to make, though, is that language as a system, as an ever-iterative and expanding system of representational logics applied to living organisms, the subjectivizing process, it gets off on us and the parts of us that exceed its count, its representational logic. That's the point we're getting at here. It gets off on putting us into its mechanizations and spitting us out again and again and again. This is another way to envision the subject as bound to signification. Think bound and tied. You could say bound and gagged, but unfortunately this is precisely what allows us to speak, is this binding that we have, this nodding to language and signification that we experience. I think this is a great way to transition to what Lacan then goes on to do on page 67, especially around the hysteric. Because if we're all bound to this signifying process that is continually drawing us back in, chewing us up again, and then spitting us back out, this sounds like a damn tragedy for the master, but a great opportunity for the hysteric. And that is indeed precisely where Lacan turns after he discusses this notion of a radically logical system that gets off not only on finding its limits, but also marking them. When Lacan talks about language, God, the big O other, and how these structures enjoy, here he's talking about language, the same thing applies to knowledge as a process. This is also how the knowledge process looks. 
Is it any coincidence that the S2 in the inner square is also the designator we use for knowledge? No, it is not. Knowledge is also one of these systems that gets off on finding and marking its limits, which is also why the hysteric becomes relevant here. What also is relevant here is his earlier distinction between knowledge and the desire for knowledge. Notice this. It's part of how we connect this notion of the hysteric as a figure in the field of knowledge that gets off on marking its own limits. Page 23 is one you've heard me cite before. I'm going to throw it your way one more time. It's at the bottom of the page. He's marking a distinction between the desire for knowledge, which he says bears no relation to knowledge itself. A radical distinction, which has far-reaching consequences, he says at the bottom of 23, from the point of view of pedagogy. The desire to know is not what leads to knowledge. What leads to knowledge is, allow me to justify this in more or less long term, the hysterics discourse. The hysteric is not characterized by a desire to know, but a trajectory toward knowledge. The discourse of the hysteric leads to knowledge. Why and how is this the case? Why does the discourse of the hysteric lead to knowledge? In short, as you've heard in us discussing the discourse of the hysteric, by forcing masters to do exactly what the most radical logical structures also do, according to Lacan on page 67, namely to mark their limits, to designate their incompletion, to reveal how their logical foundations are cracked and opened up. This is why the hysteric is relevant here. The discourse of the hysteric forces the master to do exactly what it is that these structures get off on doing, namely finding and marking their limits. Notice how Lacan immediately transitions from this discussion of radical logical structures back to the hysteric as that which leads to knowledge. It's at the bottom of page 67. It is not in vain, nor by chance, that I describe as sisterly, there it is again, the position of truth with respect to jouissance. We'll come to that in a second. Apart from the fact that I am stating it in the hysterics discourse. It doesn't take much to see the importance of the hysteric in this process and what the hysteric does to the knowledge of the master to the extent that it even has any. It forces it into that limit position. But this begs that question. The question here that Lacan is giving us in the field of sisterly love, what's truth got to do with all this? Truth for Lacan here in Seminar 17 is the opening up around which every knowledge process is structured. Truth is what is happening at that limit. The name we assign to its necessary logical incompleteness, the mark we assign to its limit, the naming of that limit in any given structure is the site of truth. In this sense, truth, according to Lacan, 
is the sister of that forbidden jouissance, the pathway to sexual jouissance that is now blocked, forbidden, obscured. That forbidden jouissance, lost to all who speak. If you look at page 67, that's why he's linking this up to jouissance. And here's the historic hysteric again. The hysteric is the one who confronts the most authoritative subject, the master, as S1, with this fact of truth, with this way that truth operates. The hysteric compels the master, like all of us, to admit this aspect of truth, to admit that their knowledge is lacking, that they fundamentally are ignorant, that they experience limits, incompleteness, and those have to be pronounced, have to be marked. Now here you might have an experience of jouissance at the level of the master <laughs> that very much feels like pain and suffering, a very classic understanding of jouissance. At the level of a structure, though, this is precisely what structures get off on, a different type of jouissance. Jouissance at the level of repetition, of structural anomalies, versus that of the master who now has to suffer the admission, the pronouncement of their own ignorance. Now, here's the thing, though, that we also know about Lacan's approach to truth. When he says things like, I, truth, am speaking, check it out. It's a couple pages before on page 65 where he cues that one up. Here's the thing, though. All those limits that get marked and whose markings the structure enjoys, you heard me say at the level of the living individual that there's always a little something more that escapes any given sequence of subjectivizing marks, thereby renewing the big barred others process. Call it language, symbolic, whatever. We can call it whatever we want, really. Lacan's structures all operate the same way. That structure is renewed and reapplied to the living individual, to that excess that doesn't quite in, isn't quite encompassed by the representative logic of any given S1. Here's the thing. Lacan is trying to capture this at the level of the truth that occurs in the naming of these limits by saying that that truth is always only a half saying. It's always only part of the truth that gets popping in any given designation of this limit. In other words, truth can be expressed, but only incompletely. And that's what we see at the level of this structure, this iterative structure that gets reapplied again and again, language applied to us, on us, marking us, is that the truth that it enjoys at the level of each marking is only ever halfway there. This is what's up with Lacan's distinction between philosophy and theory. Philosophia, if you read the Greek, it means love of wisdom, which is why you could have these figures known as the sophists that some Lacanians like to make a lot of. Sophists are great. They're really just wise guys, if you think about it. Sophia as wisdom is there in both. Philosophia is a certain type of love. Greeks had lots of different words for love, at least four or five operative ones. And Sophia is wisdom. That is not what Lacan is up to here. You see, the philosopher wants to save truth by way of their love of wisdom. 
Lacan is more interested not in saving truth, but in loving it. This is where things get totally next level wild. Lacan is interested not in saving truth, but in loving truth. If the philosopher loves wisdom, the theorist loves truth. And it's theorists that Lacan is speaking to when he's working this out, and not just any kind of theorists. Analytic theorists who also enjoy at the level of practice, namely, analysts. To love truth, according to Lacan, is to love the part of it that can be said, as half saying, that you see whenever a limit is marked and pronounced. But to love truth is also to love the part that, according to Lacan, cannot be said completely, for the reason that beyond this half there is nothing to say. To love truth is to love both of its sides, the parts that can be said and spoken, and the parts or the places where there is only nothing to say. That's from page 51, Seminar 17. I'm not making this shit up. It's straight out of the book. Here, beyond this half saying, Lacan says, discourse is abolished. Again, on page 51. Here, we pass into another field. A field that you've heard me riff on before, and one that comes through very clearly on page 52 in Seminar 17. In this field where there is nothing to say, where discourse is abolished, we pass into what Lacan describes very elusively as weakness. On page 52, Lacan is clear. The love of truth is the love of weakness. The love of what truth's half-sayings hide, in other words, castration. That is what the love of truth amounts to. It is a love of weakness as found in the logic and the life of castrated beings. This love of weakness, let's be clear, let's take the risk. This, for Lacan, is the essence of love itself. It's a bold move that he makes on page 52, right at the end, like so many great bold Lacanian moves, right at the end of chapter 3. It is upon this that everything that has to do with truth is constructed. That there is a love of weakness is no doubt the essence of love. As I have said, love is giving what one doesn't have, namely what might make good this original weakness. The task of the analyst, as a theorist and practitioner who loves truth, is to inaugurate this love of weakness, repurposing his or her knowledge as truth. Where the analyst's knowledge was, the analyzan's love of truth, weakness, and love itself must become. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper 
for our podcast theme music. 